Hi, welcome to Coach Beard's Book Club. I'm Michaela, Coach Beard's assistant. Together with Andrea, Bex and Marita, we'll be diving into the books mentioned or seen in the Apple TV series, Ted Lasso. If you love Ted Lasso, as much as Danny loves giving away joy for free, then join this group of four women, handpicked by Beard himself, and let's go. Welcome back, Greyhounds. It's been a minute. How's everyone doing? Good, good. We finally got the book that we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, we did. Just before we get into the book, I would like to have everyone introduce themselves and tell us their favourite thing about the recent trailer that came out, you know, about that show. That, that... There's, there's a trailer? Mm. There's a what trailer. What show is it for? Oh. Yeah. So, Bex, what did you think about the trailer? What's your favourite thing? I'm Bex. And I was very, very curious about the choice of song for this trailer. I have many thoughts on this choice of song, and I'm very curious to see how it plays out. Interesting. Interesting. Andrea, what about you? Hi, everybody. It's Andrea. Um, I was, well, Isaac in the pink jumpsuit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, just, I was really intent on the Nate episodes and like, there's that one scene where they kind of cut it where it looks like all the coaches are like kind of glaring at each other. Like they're all glaring at Nate. And I wonder if that's really what's happening. And then like just him sitting in that window by himself. Yes, that was, he finally got that window seat. <laughs> it was so impactful though. Yeah. 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 Get it. Excellent. And Marita, you have any thoughts on the new trailer? So I'm Marita, and uh, my favorite bit was actually Ted in the stands with Beard holding Henry wearing the West Ham jersey. I just thought there was so much adorable about that. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. And I'm Michaela, and um, I don't know if I can consider it my favorite bit, but when Colin's walking off the pitch, he looks sad, and I don't like it. And talking about walking, that's all anybody seems to be doing in that trailer. <laughs> I was knackered by the end of it. So much walking. <laughs> But I still loved it and I can't wait. But yeah, they, they know how to get get us interested with the glances and you don't know if it's edited the same way as it will be in the show. And it's just like, oh, you know what you're doing to us and you're loving it. Yeah, so, but everything's um, intentional. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> if there's one thing we've learned. <laughs> and I think you probably get more so now. Um, but yeah, I can't, I can't wait, but I, can't, I have to stop thinking about it. I'm getting too excited about the new season. Um, so let's talk about the book that we did, which is Johnny Tremaine. Bex, you'll be able to tell us exactly where in the show it appeared. Absolutely. So yes, we are talking today about Johnny Tremaine, a story of Boston in Revolt by Esther Forbes. And Johnny Tremaine is a work of historical fiction that was written by Forbes in 1943. It's set in Boston prior to the outbreak of the American Revolution. It's intended for teenage readers, and the themes of the novel include apprenticeship, sacrifice, human rights, and growing tensions between patriots, the Whigs, and loyalists, the Tories, as the conflict approaches. Some of the historical events depicted in the novel include the Boston Tea Party, the British blockade of the Port of Boston, Paul Revere's Ride, and the battles of Lexington and Concord. And as someone who grew up with family in those areas, it's still a thing. Uh, (laughs) The book won the Newbery Medal Award in 1944 and was at one point listed among the 20 best-selling children's books of the 20th century. 
As the back of the book tells us, it, the year is 1773. The scene is Boston. Johnny Tremaine is 14 and apprenticed to a silversmith. He is gifted and clever and lords his talent over the other apprentices until tragedy strikes. A crucible of molten silver breaks and the silver spills over Johnny's right hand. The hand is so badly burned it's useless, and now so is Johnny. Since he is no longer able to become a silversmith, Johnny's life takes a new path, one that will bring him in touch with Paul Revere, John Hancock, Samuel Adams, and other Boston patriots, and with all the exciting currents that will lead to the Boston Tea Party and the Battle of Lexington. Johnny's dream of being a silversmith may be dead, but he has discovered a new dream that will make him a part of American history. I think something that's really worth mentioning, and I don't know if anyone has this in here, I don't think I have it in my notes, but uh, Forbes was really good with the historical detail, but she followed, immediately before she wrote this book, she won the Pulitzer for a a grown-up adult history um, of Paul Revere. Um, So she really does have an incredibly Mm -hmm. detailed accounting of what was going on in Boston at the time. I was just going to say, I love the fact that she put it into another publisher first, and that publisher essentially asked her to sort of dumb it down for the kids. And she was like, no, I'm not going to do that. Agreed. So I love that for, for for love that for her. So where then did Johnny Tremaine appear in Ted Lasso? Well, we have mention of the book in season two, episode 10, No Weddings and a Funeral. Uh, when Dr. Sharon asked Ted to share something that he loved about his dad and he asks why, she says, you told me what you hate about him. I'd love to hear something you remember that made you feel good. Ted struggles for a moment, then shares the following story. And this is all quoted from Ted. When I was in fifth or sixth grade, there was this book called Johnny Tremaine, and our homework for like a month was to read this book. At the end of the month, I hadn't read a lick of it, you know? We had a test, a big test, like the next day. And the night before, I was anxious as all heck, and I couldn't sleep. And my dad starts getting after me about that. And I start crying and he's like, whoa, buddy, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I tell him what's up. And he says, don't worry about it, okay? Just go to your room, lay your head on your pillow and think about something you're looking forward to. So that's what I did. Next morning, I wake up and he says, hey, you ain't going to ride your bike to school. I'm going to drive you. And I'm like, all right. And on the way to school, he talks me through the entire book, like it's a bedtime story or something, because he stayed up all night, the whole night, reading the whole damn thing, because he didn't want his little boy stressed out over some stupid, silly test. And I ended up getting an A. Boom. He was a good dad. And I don't think he knew that. It's got um, reminiscent to Bird by Bird a little bit, isn't it? We are. Um, and and Lamont's brother hadn't done the homework, but instead of his dad doing it for him, they just went through it bird by bird. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, that's a great parallel. Okay, so Bex, you're starting us off today. I am. Yeah, I I figured I'd start us off with a little discussion of setting. Um, I'm going to talk about the importance of location in storytelling using Johnny Tremaine and Ted Lasso as my examples. So I'm going to start out with um, Boston and the Richmond area of London and kind of looking at the two of them and why these locations were chosen. I mean, with Johnny Tremaine, it's kind of like, well, that's where these historical events happened. But him living in Boston and Boston kind of being like. At the time, it was very close. Yeah, (laughs) It's basically... uh, 
it's it's very isolated like a little peninsula there's only one way out of boston into the rest of massachusetts so why boston why is boston the setting for johnny tremaine well we can't really tell a story about colonial america without at least talking about boston since so many of the founding fathers of the united states lived there i mean we could but it wouldn't hit as hard anyway it's pretty much the city where the revolution began, right? Britain had a lot of trouble with Massachusetts. I mean, we have the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party. You know, you get the picture. <laughs> Causing trouble up in there. Um, and since the story is primarily about the events leading up to the American Revolution, it only makes sense to start here. But the war itself begins in Lexington. It would have been possible for Forbes to write Johnny's story without having him leave Boston, but he does at one point go to Lexington, um, and having him leave emphasizes that the war extends beyond the limits of the city. So it's kind of getting into this. It's not just this location. This may be the the catalyst or a lot of where the the brains and the the thought process behind the revolution are beginning, but the war itself extends far beyond that. So why Richmond then? Well, first of all, we need a place that there wasn't already an actual football team. <laughs> and this took some Googling on my part because I'm not terribly familiar with uh, British soccer, but there are apparently 17 professional football teams in London. And there were 31 other neighborhoods that they could choose from, I guess. <laughs> so yeah, 48 neighborhoods. Well, Richmond maybe was chosen because it's uh, already a popular filming location. Some other film and TV shows that were filmed here, at least to some extent, include uh, the use of the Royal Ballet School in Billy Elliot, scenes from Into the Woods with Meryl Streep, Downton Abbey, um, and even Peter Rabbit 2. <laughs> For all those Peter Rabbit 2 fans out there, why do I feel like if Kenny were here, he'd be like, Peter Rabbit 2? I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just get that vibe from him. Um, but it is already a popular filming location. So to set it here and then actually make the story take place in the same setting, I think is really key. As someone who lives in New York and ha watches a lot of films and TV shows that are supposed to take place here, when they actually do exterior shots in the neighborhoods that they claim that they're in, it hits a lot better than when, you know, I mean, Usually Canada. <laughs> Canada trying to look like New York. Or... The most recent example I can think of, because the the start of The Last of Us takes place in Boston, right? And then after they leave Boston, there's a shot that says 10 miles west of Boston, and it's clearly like filmed up in Alberta or something. There's mountains and rapids. And, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Things that not. we don't have 10 miles out of Boston. Yeah, th like one of the ones that sticks with me a lot is the the marvel netflix shows that we're on and they'd be like oh yeah we're we're in hell's kitchen and i'm like no you're not you're in williamsburg or bushwick or so you know like yeah. we're in brooklyn not even in the right borough so um i think being able to utilize richmond that there wasn't already a team there and that it was where they were going to be able to get some great film locations and it's an area that's conducive to and open to uh filming helped with that decision Richmond is a pretty wealthy neighborhood, too, it seems like 
that was the impression I got. I mean, I'm not there. I I don't live there, but I got the impression that it was uh, a little bit on the wealthier side. It has a cute downtown area with all those little shops and everything. And so this makes for the perfect setting for Ted to have his encounters with uh, local people, right? He's we want to see that almost like a small town vibe within a big city and Richmond can provide that. So within these two locations, we've got some specific places, specific, specific settings. So the next connection I want to talk about is the, the Afric queen in um, Johnny Tremaine and the crown and anchor in Ted Lasso. So the Afric queen is a tavern where Johnny goes to eat with the silver coin he receives from John Hancock, right? He's like, oh, yeah, I'm rich now. I'm going to eat all the food. <laughs> um, all them squabs, squabs. <laughs> squab. That so weird. I had squab once, and I was also kind of drunk when I had it, and I was like, mm, this is so good. It's like the steak. It's like a steak in the form of a chicken. What is a squab? Is it just a baby chicken? Well, it's a little bird. It's its own bird. A little but bird. It's, okay. It is a little poultry thing and it was barbecued squab so it definitely tasted like steak in the form of a chicken to me <laughs> i think you were just strong well You're definitely just that strong. definitely was a part of it <laughs> anyway this this tavern is located near the boston observer office which is where johnny eventually works and lives it's a popular hangout of the Whigs, and later on the british soldiers take over the afric queen because it has a stable where they can keep their horses johnny Johnny tends to his own horse, Goblin, at the African Queen's stables. And this is also where Johnny's able to overhear information that he can bring back to the revolutionary supporters, right? It's, he's almost like a spy in this setting. Um, and the only reason he gets away with it is because he has this horse. In particular, at the African Queen, he befriends a woman named Lydia, who is a black washerwoman. And Lydia is a rebel sympathizer who, because of her connection to the British soldiers, gathers information for the rebel forces. So, like, hmm, what could the parallel be there? I don't know. <laughs> no, um, obviously, the Crown and Anchor is the pub where Ted goes to eat regularly. And it's located seemingly from the way they they film it anyway. It looks like it's very close to where his apartment is, kind of around the corner, uh, which is very similar to Johnny's situation. It's a popular hangout for the Richmond fans. And later on... Diamond Dogs. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Okay. So later on in the episode of Diamond Dogs, Rupert comes in and tries to win everyone over. But Ted gains the upper hand after beating him at darts. So, like, I'm putting Rupert with the British soldiers here. <laughs> An interesting input, sorry, as well as with you saying setting, is that we all know that that was originally meant to be a cricket match, right? Because Richmond itself is known for its cricket and that green that you see where people are always oh. walking about and where that's the cricket field. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, so you would normally see, like, it's not really a football town, it's a cricket town, which might be another reason why they've picked it. You're not going to get people walking to the football match while you're trying to film background shots. But yeah, so it was supposed to be a cricket match, but that was going to be a hell of a lot of organization and it sort of turned into a darts match. And so. since it always rained when they were filming the actual football scenes, they probably <laughs> figured something indoors would be better. Yeah, absolutely. This is a place where Ted and Beard often meet up for a beer or four. Not a beer or two, a beer or four. <laughs> I was drinking coffee when you said that and it just about choked. <laughs> um, 
And this is also where they meet many of the fans that have very strong opinions about how Ted and Beard are running the team, right? So they- Baby and Jay, baby. <laughs> we, we love yeah. Paul Baz and Jeremy. And this is also where they meet May, who is the... I don't know. Is she the owner? I like to say she's the owner, but she's definitely clearly the only bar proprietor. Yeah. yeah, clearly in charge, regardless of any other status. Yeah, she's definitely in charge. Absolutely. So she's in charge of the pub and she has their back when fans get to be too much. But she's also someone who's not afraid to tell them when they fucked up. Right. She knows a lot and she serves as this link between the world of the fans and the world of the team. So kind of the way that we had uh, Lydia listening and spying and, and reporting on both sides there. We have May filling that role here in the pub. Next up is the Boston Observer and the Richmond Clubhouse, Nelson Road. So uh, the Boston Observer is where Johnny meets Rab, which I started reading the print book and then I switched to the audio, which I'm glad because I was like, Rob, Rab? (laughs) I wasn't sure how we were pronouncing this. But uh, oh, that's a Scottish. Rab's a Scottish name. It's actually my dad's name. Oh, Uh, okay. Rab. It's short for Robert in it. So. Well, then why wouldn't it be Rob? (laughs) Because of the way we speak. (laughs) Robert. (laughs) Down the rabbit hole. (laughs) I love it. Okay, well, that's good to know. I was not familiar. I'd never seen that name before in my life. And I was like, well, that's a cool name. Yeah, Rob. And so this is where Johnny meets Rab and where he eventually works and lives. Uh, Johnny delivers the papers. Remember, he hurt his hand. He can't really do a lot of things or he thinks that he's not going to be able to do a lot of things. So he works delivering the papers. But through this process and through all the people he delivers the papers to, he learns a lot about the politics of the Americans and the British in the area. Uh, The family he'd been living with was very like reserved and tried to tried to remain relatively apolitical. I have thoughts about that. But that's kind of the way they they like were portrayed, I think. Uh, this is where the paper is printed and published before Johnny delivers it around the city. But the attic of the Boston Observer is the most important part here because in addition to Johnny and Reb sleeping here, this is where the Boston Observers hold their secret meetings to discuss political strategy. It's where the most powerful Whigs in Boston meet. And these are all like the big names, right? John Hancock, John Adams, Paul Revere, James Otis, etc. And it's through Johnny's attendance at these meetings. Uh, he's there to like serve drinks to the men. But of course, people always talk like the servers don't like have brains or aren't paying attention or aren't mm-hmm. listening to what's being talked about around them. And that's why they're the ones who know the most, right? And- it's like that episode of Our Flag Means Death, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Where they go to the other ship and um, basically the whole thing is that the, the servants know the dirt on the on the posh people. Exactly. So, yeah, exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's through Johnny's attendance at these meetings where he gains the trust of these men and becomes an integral part of the events that lead to the Revolutionary War. So then we look at the Richmond Clubhouse, Nelson Road. Well, this is where Ted works. He doesn't live here too, but I mean, I guess if you work there enough... It, Feels like you live there sometimes. But it's where he learns about football, talks with the press, has meetings with Rebecca and Higgins and Dr. Sharon. It's where he gives pep talks to the players and strategizes with Beard and Nate and Roy. And I'm leaving Nate in there because he was a big part of that. He is a diamond dog. And I feel that he's going to be redeemed. So I don't want to 
I don't want to throw him out yet. <laughs> He's a diamond stray at the moment, but he'll come back. There we go. Uh, it's here that Ted gains the trust of those around him, whether they're the players or the staff. And I'm not sure that I could provide the most important room in the clubhouse as they each play an important role, right? Um, the press room is where he learns how uh, ridiculous the British press is and how he can best work with it. And yes, I, the British press is ridiculous. I'm sorry. They're absurd. They are absurd. <laughs> and especially like Ernie, whatever, from The Sun in that first That's episode. That's The Sun. We all hate The Sun. Everybody hates The Sun here. <laughs> I don't know who, who even buys The Sun anymore. It's kind of like the New York Post. I, I... <laughs> yes, it is. It's, it's exactly like that. Yeah. There's also the locker room where he gives the pep talks to the team and where they celebrate one another, where he deals with Jamie, his and Beard's office where the Diamond Dogs meet and support one another and deal with their problems, Dr. Sharon's office, which is where he finally opens up about things, or at least some of them. Obviously, there's that other scene in his own apartment. And then Rebecca's office is another important location because this is where he gradually breaks through her sort of shell that she that that wall that she's putting up and creates a true friendship with her so like all of the rooms here are very important the same is true of the boston observer there just were only like two rooms the press room and then the attic <laughs> um and then don't forget the boot room but you can't forget the boot room oh <laughs> yes the boot room where we go to smoke <laughs> when no it's one's like looking <laughs> Well, and it also gives us a great example of when someone of a more service class can overhear information, because we have that scene between Roy and Jamie, uh, when Jamie confesses he told Keely that he still loved her. And at the end, we get the shot where uh, Kit Manuel is just sort of standing in the back, petrified that he was trapped hearing all of that. I love that. Yeah, no, that's a that's a fantastic example, right? And it's it, but it's so true. People act like if if someone is of the serving class or plays a serving role, that what they can hear they they either don't know enough about, so it won't mean anything, or they don't really think about it because they're too busy doing their jobs, or we're not even giving them credit for like listening i guess <laughs> i don't know it's wild but you know whenever you watch then i mentioned downton or abby being filmed in this area it's like complete fiction but like everybody all all the housekeepers and the house staff they know yeah. all the gossip you're gonna get that information from anything the example from our flag means death that you brought up like yeah. those are the people who know what's really truly going on all right, and then just real quick, a few other locations that were important to each of the stories. In Johnny Tremaine, we have Hancock's Wharf, which is where Lap Lapham's Silver Shop is located. And Hancock's Wharf is owned by John Hancock. We have Fish Street, the street on Hancock's Wharf where the Lapham's Silver Shop is located. And this is a busy street uh, with shops and stores and all that sort of thing. There's the Boston Common. A large area in the center of the town of Boston. British soldiers make their encampment here. Um, and then there's also the Old South Church, which is the church where the colonists gathered to hear Sam Adams speak. Right. And we also have not that far away the Old North Church, uh, which is where the lanterns were hung to, to signal to Paul Revere. See? Churches. They're kind of important. In some capacity, anyway. <laughs> uh, we'll get to that with Ted Lasso as well. I just pulled parallel type locations from Ted Lasso. We have the paved court, 
uh, or we have paved court and this is the street where Ted Lasso lives. It's just around the corner from the Crown and Anchor and is located in Richmond. Uh, apparently in real life, there's an Argentinian empanada place nearby. So I love Argentinian empanadas. They're probably my favorite kind of empanada. <laughs> Except for when they put the olives in the beef one, then I'm just like, no, take the olives out. But it flavors it. It flavors it. Yeah, I we are, my family, we all take them out, but it flavors <laughs> it. it. I don't mind the, the flavor, but I just the olives themselves. I'm like, yeah, we pick them out. My family, we all pick them out. I feel better now. I don't. <laughs> I don't know how to say this. Twickenham. Absolutely bang on. That's where the rugby <laughs> takes place. Twickenham. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the rowing club. So this is where we see Roy, Keeley, and Phoebe drinking their hot chocolate in season two, right in front of the River Thames, right? This, it's just sort of there, but it's important to set us in that location. Like we know that that's part of that Richmond world. Um, then we have the green and Michaela, I think you mentioned this before, but uh, this is where we see Sam walking when he's talking to his dad on the phone and where he sees that sign that helps him make the decision to stay with Richmond. Right. He sees that kid in the Obisanya jersey and it's just like, oh, yeah, I actually like. There's my sign. Yeah, I have an impact here. And then St. Andrew's Kingsbury Church. This is where both interior and exterior church scenes were filmed for no weddings and a funeral. That's really unusual as well. Like, well, I don't know how unusual it is, but to use the exterior and inter interior of the same building. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised yeah. that the church had them in there. I think it's important to take note of location, generally speaking, that stories are set in certain locations for certain reasons, or if they're not those locations become central to the story that's being told, even if it's after the fact. So why Richmond is important to Ted Lasso. <laughs> there you go. I think sometimes locations can be um, a character themselves oh. in certain things. Absolutely. You know? Like there's certain shows that you, could, you couldn't you could watch if they didn't take place where they took place. I mean, we always say that about New York. <laughs> New York. Yeah, New, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, not a great you know, show for me anyway, probably loads of people that love it, but an ex a good example would be Sex uh, in the City, is that if you took that and... New York is the fifth character or whatever. Fit, completely, yes, fifth yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's loads of stuff. Like World building is so important, and I think Ted Lasso nailed it. Yeah. I think Only Murders in the Building does a really good job, too, of making, like, the building and New York be part of the, you know... I was going to say, in terms of New York, um, that book, Andrea, that you sent me, The City We Become, New York is not just one character, but six characters. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God, I love that book. I love that book. I hope you liked it. I just love that. Yeah. Oh, Bex, I, I really enjoyed that. And I'm going to say what Andrea, I'm going to say what Andrea points out a lot, and I'm going to do it this time, is we all come up with such different things that I, I just, the joy it brings me. As not once in this entire experience have any of us came with exactly the same topic. I know. I, I love it. it too. I love it too. It shows all our personalities off really well. Um, so now, Marita, you're going to take us forward. Yeah. So there's a couple academic papers about Johnny Tremaine I want to talk about. There were some really fun ones, so it was hard to even narrow it down to two. Um, but I think these two have kind of the most direct connections to what I want to talk about with Ted Lasso. And the and the first one is called Narrative Loss and the Melancholic Reader of Johnny Tremaine by Eric Tribunella. 
And so what this paper talks about is how the novel Johnny Tremaine continually sets up and then fails to meet expectations and what the emotional impact of that is. So uh, the paper discusses Freud's theory of melancholia, and I tried to find a way to avoid bringing Freud into this, but we're just going to use some Freud terms for just a second. This is a quote from the paper. (laughs) Uh, According to Freud, melancholia occurs in cases where the libido must be withdrawn from an object owing to a real slight or disappointment, and that rather than simply displacing the free libido onto another object, it is withdrawn into the ego. This withdrawal of libido into the ego serves to produce an identification with the lost object. The ego then takes the place of what is lost and can carry on for what is lost. So basically... (laughs) That was a visceral reaction that Marita just had after having to read that. All of us have. Yeah, all of us. I, I read more Freud. There's just so much... Freud specific vocabulary that there's it's just chewy and mm. but basically I'm sorry that you had to do that and I think you deserve a cookie you deserve a cookie basically when we're applying this idea to a story context if we have some outcome that we're invested in that the story seems to be really leading up to but then it doesn't happen rather than just moving on to the next thing and getting excited about that we tend to redirect that invested energy inward and end up with the situation where our brain wants to reconstruct or fill in those blanks ourselves right I, that's that's the freud boiled down so quoting tribunal again the narrative construction of the novel itself works to make disappointment and loss two of johnny tremaine's salient features the novel can be read as a series of anticlimaxes so he goes on to argue that you can kind of continue this is a quick quote, continue this repeated absence of narrative closure as representing a kind of loss. And so he's claiming then that this leads to a melancholic reading of the novel. So before we talk about what that means or what it has to do with Ted Lasso, let's talk about all of these anti-climaxes in Johnny Tremaine, right? He starts off as an orphan, which is super common in this Bildungsroman, this coming-of-age story. Uh, It's really common in symbolism related to the Revolutionary War because we're breaking away from the mother country. Right. He's a super talented silversmith. Early in the story, he's going to make this amazing piece that proves his artistry so he can move on to bigger and better things, better things. But it doesn't happen. Right. This prank happens. He's disfigured and it ruins his chances to be like not just a silversmith, but basically any kind of skilled artisan. It's cost him his future. It also ends up costing him his second family. So he's totally going to get dove. Right. He's going to take revenge. And, and that would be a natural arc for a lot of stories. But he doesn't. That heroic confrontation, that doesn't ever happen, right? He ends up sort of seeing Dove as pathetic. And then we have this cup, this really specific familial cup that his mother has given him. She introduces it like before she dies and says, hey, if you're ever in the worst of straits, take this to the lights who are this really rich family in town. And, you know, they'll know you're one of the family. And right. So we introduce this cup. And it seems like we're headed to this, you know, story where he goes and claims his rightful place of higher status. But no, like when he goes to the lights, they're total shits. Uh, They claim that he stole it. They take him to court. And given that the penalty for this would be hanging, they basically try to have him murdered for having this cup. Right. So then he wins in court and he goes back with the cup, which like any adult reading this is like, dude, no. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But he's thinking he'll get something out of it. But again, no, they just steal the cup from him and kick him out. So that all goes on and when they finally figure out he is one of the family and they're like oh whoops he he doesn't take the bait he doesn't join the family he walks away he tears up the evidence that he's related to them right and so this whole book everything is anti-climax there's multiple potential villains there's dove who gave him the cracked crucible that led to his disabling right there's lapham who is the the mentor silversmith that you know causes all sorts of problems there's tweety the new silversmith that comes in there's the light family a range of British officers. 
But none of those villain tales really ever get rolling too much, right? We never get this big heroic climactic confrontation. It doesn't happen. And similarly, you can't always get what you want. <laughs> oh, that is so the theme of this part. Yeah. So we also have a few love triangles pop up, right? Does Johnny like Lavinia? Does he like like Scylla? Does Scylla like you know Johnny, or does she like Rabbit? But there's never a big blow up. There's never a confrontation, and there's also never a hookup. Nobody gets together. So we've set up all these love triangles that go nowhere. Uh, we get this whole storyline where Johnny gets Rab a rifle because Rab is convinced that if he gets a good rifle, right, that he can do anything in the war. But Rab dies without even firing a shot. And then at the end, Johnny is going to get this surgery that's going to make him able to go off and fight. But the novel just stops before that actually happens, right? We stop before he has the surgery. Yeah. Yeah, that was, I was like, why is all I want to know? <laughs> right. So we go back to Trivanella, and, and here's a quote from him. Through its multiple narrative failures that potentially defy expectation, produce disappointment, and prompt the reader's imagined fulfillment of the novel's failed promises, those absences or gaps that demand to be filled, Johnny Tremaine can be read as producing a reader relation characterized by melancholia in which the reader is encouraged to reenact, reconstruct, or complete the narrative in order to supply the elements that would realize the climactic moments. So in terms of Johnny Tremaine, Tribunella discusses this as part of what gives the novel so much emotional resonance and so much staying power because it does prompt us so much to fill in those gaps. Uh, but he does go a little bit further. And he talks about this is a story of Johnny's development, right? And given that how gendered and nationalistic and specific to the the U.S. nationality, right? Given how gendered and nationalistic that development is and how the structure of the novel encourages living up to those unfulfilled expectations in a certain kind of way, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Forbes put this in the immediate aftermath of Pearl Harbor, and she's writing this essentially in a way that's going to sort of rally the troop and get the boys to turn into the men that are going to go fight for their country, right? And the way the novel is structured encourages that because there are all those gaps. But of course, we're talking about Ted Lasso. So we bring this back to Ted Lasso. And when we have a situation, as Trivanella says, that has absences or gaps that demand to be filled, and then we are, quote, encouraged to reenact, reconstruct, or complete the narrative in order to supply the elements that would realize the expected climactic moments. What does that sound like to y'all? Does that sound like fan fiction? Yeah. <laughs> Right. And so to me, it sounds like a lot like what happens with all the fan fiction that gets written because people have these things that they get really super invested into having happen. And when the show doesn't provide that, instead of just moving on to, to some other goal, a lot of folks will just go in and fill in those gaps themselves. Right. I want to have a disclaimer here when I talk about fan fiction. Fan fiction is writing, right? I am not, this is not a pejorative of, about fan fiction. Those folks are actually creative and doing writing output. It's not my. 100%. But it is absolutely writing. And those those folks are doing some really cool things. But it also makes sense that Ted Lasso, in addition to many other shows, but Ted Lasso subverts expectations so much, it would make, it makes sense that we get that sort of prompt out of the show, right? Because who's the villain? Like nominally in season one, we have Rebecca. She gets a redemption art. I think Rupert, we have the most canonical villain. And with our Star Wars parallels, I think that's who it's going to be. But the only really sort of heroic confrontation we've had so far is that darts match, right? Ted's not going to haul off and punch Rupert. We kind of want him to, but that's a, an expectation we never get, right? And then we have Nate, who we already all hope gets redeemed. Drea? Yes, I want to, I, we don't forget Sassy versus Rupert. 
Oh, yes. He just takes Rupert down. Oh, yeah, that's a great point. But for other villain arcs, you know, Jamie, you kind of hate early on, but he gets quickly redeemed. Jamie's dad, there's a confrontation there. But I would argue it's not a very satisfying one because we see how emotionally devastating it was to Jamie. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But then we get Beard After Hours as well, where there's the sort of like... Oh, yeah. Street fight between Beard and them. But we we don't have, and, and it's yet, right? We know we're in a three-act structure, right? So we don't have these, the structure where we have these massive sort of, you know, the villain gets their comeuppance. Because even when Ted beats Rupert in the darts match, there's not, the consequences of that are kind of low stakes for Rupert. He can't be a, as big a dick as he would like to be. That's not, <laughs> that's not like losing his fortune, right? And we have love triangles. We don't have resolution on those yet, but we definitely have redirects that we're seeing, the banter texting being one of the most significant examples of that. Um, and even other temporarily subverted expectations. They build up Jamie getting, you know, in the first season, right, getting used to the team, getting comfortable and like being part of the team, and he immediately gets sent off to, to Man City. So when they talk about season three, the folks involved in making the show have talked about it having a satisfying resolution, but they've done such a great job of building this narrative tension with the will there and deciding if people will be redeemed that there's a lot of gaps that people fill. And I think that functions in a lot of ways with people, how people react to the show, with how um, invested people get, and also with how they have creative output related to the show. So it's interesting to ponder the tangible effects of this situation in these two things. So Forbes's novel would be inspiring to patriotic young men, right? Getting them ready to step into adulthood and presumably fight for that, their country, right? You see Johnny about to do that, but you don't see him do it. So it inspires that. And one of the things I think is interesting that we frequently see in Ted Lasso is what I'm going to call asymmetric kindness, right? Ted is being really patient and kind with people who at least initially are really, really shitty in return. And so we look at all these people who are talking about kindness as a result of the show, and you have to think, would it be the same in terms of inspiring other people to be kind if Ted's kindness was initially met with just a kind response in return from other people? Or is part of why we Ooh. want to be kind as a result of the show because we look at it and we see Ted being super nice and Ted's a likable character and people are shitty in return, and we get this gap in our head that we have to fill in, like, why are they being such douches to him? Him. He's a nice guy. Be nice in return. And so I think it's interesting um, to look at how those unfulfilled expectations sort of lead to what the actual tangible responses to something like this are. So that's the first paper. Y'all have any thoughts? You're you're talking to somebody who's literally filled in the gaps for, for Colin. Oh, indeed. And we'll get to there. We will. Oh, good. Right. Yeah, okay, you were well, mentioning let's... those love triangles and I'm like, mm. <laughs> Colin, well, yeah, I'm like you missed the most important one, but okay. <laughs> I think I feel like maybe maybe she left it out intentionally so you all can address it. <laughs> yes, the most important trial. Oh, there you go. There we go, and we fell down. So the second paper I want to talk about um, is going to touch on the trauma Ted's experienced in his life. And the paper is called Time Out, Trauma and Play in Johnny Tremaine and Alan and Naomi by Margaret Egonet. And in this, the author compares depictions of trauma in Johnny Tremaine and also in a book called Alan and Naomi. Alan and Naomi was written in the late 70s. We're not going to talk much about it, but something quickly relevant here is it was written when a new wave of research into trauma was taking place as a result of the need to treat veterans of the Vietnam War. So this is a little bit of a digression, but the first thing I thought about when I saw that 
So I'm about the same age Ted would be in 1991. I was a teenager in high school. Was Ted's dad a Vietnam War vet? He's certainly the right age for it. I know how many of my friends had parents, uh, fathers, um, who were deeply, deeply affected by it in ways that were pretty, pretty clear. I don't know if we'll get more of that backstory. That's just kind of random speculation, but it was a question that popped up for me. Never even thought about it. Wouldn't that. be That's surprising, really... though, when you talk about him like always going out and doing things with maybe his buddies and drinking and like sort of these coping mechanisms that he was utilizing exactly. instead of therapy or whatever. And the self-hatred as well, because, you know, when those guys came back, you know, there was a lot of tension mm-hmm. and they were like accused of being killers and stuff. So, yeah, it's really funny. My other podcast, we just did an episode on um, Jenny from Forrest Gump. So we were talking about the Vietnam War there oh, as right. well. And like just the the difference in perception from many of the soldiers compared to someone like Forrest who doesn't have that intellectual capacity to uh, understand the ramifications of what he's been involved in. <laughs> anyway, yeah, th- but for most people don't react to being in the Vietnam War the way Forrest Gump did. <laughs> right, right. So Egan's paper also invokes Judith Herman's book, Trauma and Recovery, which I went and read. Um, and there's actually a few interesting points here. That's It's it's uh, an interesting book. Uh, and it's funny because it was one of the foundational books of talking about complex PTSD. And if you look through sort of the, the cycles of trauma and how people recover from it and what they need to do, TED is almost literally textbook. And so if you look into Herman's work, um, first, let's uh, I'm going to quote her description of traumatic memory. Uh, as it relates to children. In their predominance of imagery and bodily sensation, and in their absence of verbal narrative, traumatic memories resemble the memories of young children. Studies of children, in fact, offer some of the clearest examples of traumatic memory. That's actually a really precise description of how Ted's panic attacks manifest, right? We lose all verbal component. It is predominantly bodily sensation with his hands tingling, imagery with the way the lights affect him and things change like that. So what we're describing here is really similar to Ted's panic attacks. I also thought it was interesting because elsewhere in the book, not too far off, Herman describes these traumatic and wordless quality. Uh, And I just thought that was kind of, I don't think fun's the right word. When we see Ted's first panic attack, Rebecca is singing a song from Frozen. Frozen. Um, Frozen. So I, I just thought that's interesting and probably not intentional in that regard, but I love how they choose things for the show, which don't necessarily just have one meaning for one character, but can mean different things for different folks. Back to Egan A. Um, she points out, among other things, that a lot of children's literature softens the depiction of trauma and violence. So here is a quote, and it's got a quote within a quote. Um, as Adrian Kurtzer has pointed out, in most literature about war trauma aimed at a child audience, quote, what is distressing is often softened, and what is traumatic is made coherent. So then authors, parents, and students hope to protect their idea of children and children's literature as a safe space. And that's true. A lot of children's literature really softens the blow. But why this is interesting to me, uh, Johnny Tremaine decidedly does not do this, right? It does not soften the blow of trauma. We get depictions of physical violence, his emotional response to that. We get the social trauma of a city under siege and a revolution about to start. It really doesn't pull punches in that regard. But Ted didn't read the book. 
right? His dad did. And if we want to indulge in a little speculation here, his dad did it in the context of protecting him from being upset about a test. So if he's just recounting the story, the narrative in the car ride to school and giving him the beats about what happened, you can really easily see him doing the softening of the edges in the story of his retelling to Ted, right? Mm. It's not, oh, he was so upset, his life was ruined. You don't get all that downtime in the narrative. It's just beat by beat what's going on, right? So, and it's also... Incidentally, when Disney made a movie of Johnny Tremaine, it was much more upbeat and rah rah. We're gonna... oh, we've got we've got something to say about that as well. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. But I think that makes it an even more interesting juxtaposition with the two stories Ted tells to Doctor Sharon, because one, his dad is a good memory, right? and it's his dad conceivably protecting him, and the other is why he hates his dad, and basically his dad perpetrating the worst trauma Ted encountered in his childhood. So I think the fact that it was Johnny Tremaine that his dad was reading, and his dad was probably editing out some of the traumatic bits of that story, makes it resonate even a little more um, with that that being the book his dad read. Uh, there was one thing that really stood out to me when you were talking about, oh, you know, this this article mentioned this other book, right? And you're talking about the new wave of trauma, coping with trauma and everything. And you could say that that's kind of what we're in now is a new wave of how to approach coping with trauma. So if if Johnny Tremaine was kind of you know, the 40s version of this in, in a in a different way than the 70s, you have this other novel that you mentioned. Well, now we've got like a Ted Lasso, which is also a way of like a, a product of something that comes out of a wave of a new way of coping with trauma. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I love that. So something else on the trauma theme that really connects Johnny and Ted. Um, so quoting Egan A., Johnny Tremaine emphatically sets aside the us-them mentality that afflicts so much war literature. Right lies on more than one side, and human warmth transcends political difference. Perhaps because of his own suffering, Johnny develops a complex complex awareness of the cost of violence, right? We see that in the novel. We see Johnny getting really upset when there's fights, people getting beat up, people getting killed. And it's so reflected in Ted, right? He cares more about wins than he does about losses to the detriment of his coaching sometimes. His trauma is explicitly stated as a reason why he's so careful with people. And when we have storylines, you know, we have matches against other teams, but they're not framed as enemies. They're obstacles, right? They're plot devices, but we don't have like the other team's not the bad guy in the way that it is often set up in sporting movies. And we see this, we go so far as to see, you know, Henry wearing the West Ham jersey in the stands with Ted, right? Ted does not us and them. Um, he has this complex understanding of people in a way that that keeps him from framing things that way. So one other thing, Igene uh, talks about, um, I'll quote her again, in her, in her 1944 acceptance paper for the Newbery Medal, Forbes explains that her long-deferred desire to write the story of a revolutionary-era apprentice was released when the attack on Pearl Harbor forced modern boys to face losses and hard decisions like those confronted by boys in the 18th century. Quoting Forbes then, when war comes, these boys are suddenly asked to play their part as men. Right, So that goes back to why it's so effective. The way she structured it is sort of encouraging boys to do that. But basically, in Johnny Tremaine, we have a circumstance where a traumatic circumstance forces a transition, probably prematurely in a lot of cases, from boyhood to manhood. And on a non-societal scale, that's exactly what happened to Ted, right? With Ted, it was this personal trauma, not a societal one. But you can see the transition in the novel with Johnny, especially when he steps up to take Rab's place. That's when he's, you know, deciding to become a man from a boy. Like, he's getting surgery without anesthesia so he can go fight. 
Meanwhile, Ted experiences this trauma. What's the first thing he does? He goes to the fridge and he grabs one of his father's beers, right? That is very much taking mm-hmm. over the manhood of the house. Then he he calls his mom. He doesn't say he calls her and tells her what happened, right? He calls her and tells her she needs to come home. Um, and that's just very much taking this this strict cleavage between the the boyhood and the manhood. This is this event that does that. I also thought it was interesting. There's a couple more Ted and Johnny parallels that I'll get through. Uh, I thought it was interesting that Johnny initially re- resists treatment for his injury, right? When Dr. Warren first inquires about it. Uh, as a surgeon who is entirely capable of fixing it, Johnny's embarrassed by it and he isn't willing to let Dr. Warren see it. Uh, we see a parallel with Ted because we see Dr. Sharon come in and his injury is psychic, right? He won't let her know what's going on. He won't talk to her in an honest way, in a way that she could help him with that. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's one thing of symbolism that I thought was interesting because uh, people writing in all sorts of ways have talked about the symbolism of the cracked crucible that causes the accident that causes Johnny's injury. So the fun thing about symbolism in literature is that you can sort of run it in all sorts of different directions, but there is this symbolism, right, of the severing of the U.S. from England, right, that crack in the crucible. And we also have the eventual and necessary severing of Johnny's scar tissue, right? The scar tissue has bound his thumb to his hand, and they're going to have to sever that. So there's another split, another fissure that has to happen there. In Ted Lasso, there's lots of metaphoric severing in his marriage and his working relationship with Nate, but we actually get a literal severing too. We get a crack and a fissure, or I don't know, a tear uh, in the believe sign that we have at the end of season two. So I thought that was an interesting parallel there <laughs> just made a yeah absolutely we need to all have a go at making our own believe signs as well right yeah i love how marita brings in papers like um academic papers into her sections i really enjoy that and marita this was a team effort marita sent me a paper that she thought might be something i was interested in the paper's called could johnny tremaine be gay Reinterpretation as a Subversive Act, and it's by Professor A. Scott Henderson. And we couldn't get hold of the paper, so Marita was like, why don't you just email him and and ask him for it? And I was like, can you help me with that, please? (laughs) And she did. Academics, we love sharing our work. If you reach out and ask for a copy of something I've written, I'll be like, yes, here you go. Have all the copies. (laughs) He, He sent me the copy, and not only did he send me the copy, he was like, if you want to sort of chat about this, if you want to interview me about it, let me know. And I was like, yes, please. Like I practically bit his hand off. (laughs) (laughs) Also something that academics like. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We like to be able to engage in, in conversation about our research. So I'm sure he was thrilled. I think it's probably better for us as well, because uh, I'm not as afraid with academic papers as as Marita and, and Bex will be. Um, But this was a, a, really easy one for me to read one because the subject matter is right up my street and two because it's beautifully written so what we decided to do was so yeah to come up on that and me and Andrea had a a zoom interview with Scott and disgust what everyone knows my theory that Colin is gay I love it yeah we compared that to the sort of queer reading of Johnny Tremaine and the way that Ted Lasso has dealt with that. And I don't want to spend too long intro in this because we chatted for an hour and I know that I can't put an hour section into this podcast. But what we are going to do is I'm going to cut up the best bits and then we're also going to release the full interview as a bonus episode because it's just too good to 
be lying in my hard drive to be honest with you it was <laughs> talking to him was like talk like some of our our kind of podcast sessions where we like we could have just kept talking easily to you know and we we're just like oh well i guess we kind of have to yeah. let you go now like, i could have spoke to him all day so yeah it looks like we might have inducted him into the ted lasso family in my discussion of johnny tremaine and its relevance to ted lasso I am thrilled to be joined by Professor Scott Henderson from Fulmer University in Greenville, South Carolina. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. And Andrea, you're joining us today as well, because I think our our sort of sections are overlapping a bit. I love when that happens. So Scott is the author of Could Johnny Tremaine Be Gay? Reinterpretation as a Subversive Act, published in the Journal of Homosexuality. And frequent listeners of the podcast will know that we have a theory that one of the characters in Ted Lasso is gay. And Scott, I'm right in saying you haven't seen Ted Lasso yet. Correct. Yet. (laughs) And I say yet because we are planning to induct you into the fandom. So I was going to say that we'll try not to give you any spoilers, but I think you kind of know the character that we're alluding to. I do. So we've already spoiled. (laughs) No No problem. In Ted Lasso, if we get what we're expecting, it will be a season three reveal that the character is a gay man, that Colin is a gay man. And it's my opinion that in order to make this reveal as impactful for the show, that there is a lack of LGBT plus representation in the first two seasons. So I think that's an attempt to lure people who would not necessarily engage with LGBT plus storylines to be Trojan horsed into them. What do you feel is more useful to the LGBT plus community? Representation from the get-go of a story or a reveal after getting to know the character in other ways? So there are a couple of ways you can approach that question. One is from the producer or writer's side. And if the intended audience is predominantly male and if the series or the story arc focuses on sports, which this one does, then you're probably going to want to hold off and do a reveal later on. If your target audience is women and or younger viewers of either sex, then you're probably okay to have the character's identity right up revealed right in the beginning. Now, the question asked about the LGBT community, and I would say that probably most, and I'm, I'm throughout the podcast, I am going to speak for the entire global <laughs> LGBTQIA plus community. You know, I'm old enough to remember where you had to look for secret codes and tiny little hints. And and those days really are over. And I think an LGBTQ viewer, listener, uh, reader would prefer to simply have the character's identity portrayed naturally and as organically and as 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 quickly as the story uh, lends itself to. Now, just one other comment. Of mm-hmm. course, all fiction relies on a certain amount of dramatic tension. And it may be that the character, regardless of gender or uh, sexual orientation, um, it, it works to build dramatic tension for the, the viewer not to know everything about a character. That said, you know, imagine if we had to wait three years to find out if a character were heterosexual. Anyway, that's... Yeah, that's a long answer to an excellent question. 
Oh, thank you. No, that's that's a really good answer because I hadn't really considered the difference in not only the genre, but the audience watching. Um, would you say that, uh, Scott, that revealing a character's homosexuality later in the story panders more to the straight audience than it does to the LGBT audience who are looking for that representation? Well, I, and I know this might be related to a, another question regarding gay baiting, and so I might kind of combine the answer here. Yeah. Uh, as I noted earlier, and as Andrea has has rightly pointed out, I mean, we're in an area here of male professional sports where there are still, I mean, it's the last area of professional life where you really can't be out. Um, I know yeah. in doing a little background research for this podcast, I I ran across the fact that when Colin Martin, who's an American uh, professional soccer slash footballer, uh, when he came out in 2018, at that time, which was just five years ago, he was the only male out gay player in any of the five major U.S. sports leagues, which is pretty astounding when wow. you think of yeah. Um, but, but getting back to your question, you know, I, I can recall several shows a long time ago, and one of them was an American TV series called Dynasty, in which the, the gay baiting was just, I mean, we sat glued to the TV for years trying to determine or find out if Stephen, one of the characters, was um, gay. And uh, unfortunately, that that was a mess. But in terms of today, I really think most LGBTQ viewers, and I know I said this before, really would prefer not to have to wait several years to find out about a character's sexuality or gender expression. Mm -hmm. Unless, and I did not mention this before, if that's part of the character. If the character, he, she, themselves is uncertain, unclear, confused, or hiding it, then that's a natural part of the story. Otherwise, um, I really don't have any use for, you know, gratuitous gay baiting. Mm. I think that might apply to Ted Lasso, just in the sense that Colin, I think, is discovering his identity at, the, at that time. I, we can't guarantee that because we don't know what Colin's friendships are like outside the masculine football situation. But certainly within it, it seems to be something that he's not ready to address. So that that could fit quite well with the Ted Lasso situation. Do you think that revealing it later in the story is supportive of the activist agenda that Slagle refers to, as in the tricking people into the sort of storyline? Yeah, bait and switch. Uh, a parallel came to mind, which is uh, imagine a story in which during the second or third year of the series, we discover that one of the characters has a learning disability, maybe has really bad dyslexia and has never learned how to read. Would anyone really then claim there's an activist agenda there? And of course, that's a rhetorical question, and but I'll answer it anyway, which is no. Yeah. Uh, I think people who want to see this as an activist agenda have a whole set of other problems with LGBTQ plus individuals, both fictional and real. And so I do not, I see that as a red herring. What do you think, Andrea? Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, I, right, like that idea that just because you put someone, you know, I think it happens also with race. If you put, you know, a, um, color two different races that get together, it's some kind of activist agenda, mm. some kind of woke, you know, woke agenda to speak to, and it's just kind of like I don't know, it doesn't yeah. make any sense. It's like um, it's like what you said with learning disability. I would also say with physical disability is that. Yeah. I love shows that have people with physical disabilities where the storyline isn't about their physical disability. Even though Colin hasn't had his coming out yet and there's a large section of the fandom that has related to him um, and the expectation that he will, in your effects, what would a slow burn storytelling style have on a young gay man in a masculine environment? You know, I, I there are two sides to this coin probably three actually because most coins do have three sides mm-hmm. but if you're a closeted young gay man if if you're uh then a, a slow reveal is going to be less threatening even though it's a fictional setting mm-hmm. on the other hand I, I just cannot emphasize the enormous importance of both real and fictional role models and i i think this is often where many of us forget about the power of fiction to cultivate and foster empathy and to change views and attitudes. So in that regard, I'm not sure a slow burn is terribly helpful when in fact, if a character were to come out sooner than later, that's one more contact point Mm -hmm. for an individual who may think he or she is the only person on the planet who feels the way they do. Great, yeah. that's. I think what, what made a lot of sense there was the empathy, um, which is something that Ted Lasso has embraced through talking about mental health and talking about other aspects of accountability. So I really hope that they get this right. I have faith, but I do still, you know, worry about it. An area in Johnny Tremaine, and Ted Lasso that I think overlaps is the expectation, that, and to quote from your article, that masculine roles are non-negotiable. Do you think that media surrounding war and sports has solidified these expectations? And if so, would having gay representation in these fields change that expectation? That's a very good, thought-provoking question. The quick answer to that is we have made a lot of progress in terms of, I won't say war, I'll say military service, right? So in the States here, we're beyond, we've we've eliminated, don't ask, don't tell. We have done a fair job with now integrating gay, lesbian, non-binary to a lesser extent transgender individuals in the military. Uh, as Andrea noted earlier, the the last bastion is professional sports. And I would say in comparison with military service, we can think of sports, male sports. And I think that's the key here. I think we can think of that as something where the stakes are both too high and too low. So in the military service, regardless of how homophobic you are, transphobic you are, your life is literally on the line in regard to your fellow soldiers protecting you. Mm-hmm. So you can only be so homophobic or transphobic. Mm-hmm. In sports, on the one hand, the stakes are too low. 
right? I mean, no, I, I don't have to get along with the gay shortstop on the baseball team because my life is had is not in the balance. Mm -hmm. But the stakes are also high for a couple of reasons. First, the vast majority of professional sports throughout the world remain for some reasonable and justifiable um, reasons remain sex segregated. So an American baseball or an American football or an American basketball team is one of the last places that men themselves have as a way of expressing their masculinity. Mm -hmm. They don't feel threatened, air quotes, by women. It's also high stakes because unlike the military, right? If, if I'm in the military for four years, I'm not looking at an endorsement deal when I retire, right? Of uh, 50 million euros. But in professional sports, there's that consideration. So the shortest possible way to answer your question is to say, in war, we've done a lot in terms of broadening the representation of who can and cannot be part of that undertaking. In male professional sports, where that's still a goal yet to be achieved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Andrea, you were saying there's a marked difference between women's sports and men's okay. sports in, in that in that regard. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy that um I don't know why it's you know, quote unquote okay for women. So it's it's much more prevalent in women's sports. And like I don't yeah, there's something about it being okay and making air quotes for women. You know, it's it's sexy for a woman to be, you know, right? Like there's that whole element yeah. of it, which is just ridiculous, you know. I mean, I think it just it all falls into gender norms and how people again like my whole my whole thing I keep saying about putting people in boxes people need to fit everyone needs to fit in this thing this box that has many sides and it has many things and as a woman you're not allowed to do these things and that things and I just think for men the that masculinity that that need to be a man mm. is so like just prevents so much so many possibilities so many things yeah it's, it's interesting you say that, though, because it leads directly into the next question, which relates to the Disney movie of Johnny Tremaine, which there seems to be an overcompensation to make Johnny more traditionally yeah. masculine. And they, it does feel like they went out of their way to avoid any sort of other possible reading, meaning that they must have seen something in themselves to react in that way. But what what I wonder is, why is skill in military and sports directly tied to overt masculinity because you know in, in football there is not, not necessary to be a, an overtly masculine person to be able to kick a ball into a goal so why why do we think that is what, what about yourself Scott yeah again to overgeneralize here um, I think all of the things you mentioned want one of the common factors is um, the link to violence and at least in U.S. culture, there has been a longstanding cultural link between masculinity and violence. In other words, you show or demonstrate your masculinity if your sex is male through aggression and in some cases violence. And of course, war is state approved or state sponsored violence. I think when you think of many sports, not all, but 
I mean, golf comes to mind, but but when you think of many sports, I mean, they are an approved form of violence that we pay for as entertainment. Mm -hmm. So I do the, you know, I saw that movie when I was a child and thought it was wonderful because Walt Disney could do no wrong. And when I went back and rewatched it when I was writing this paper, it was all I could do to get to get through it. Mm -hmm. It Wow, I found it dreadful what they did mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and that's that's the disney machine isn't it yeah <laughs> so now we get into probably the bit that's a bit more of a downer unfortunately and then um, i think there's a similarity between fielder's reaction to queer reading of the friendship between boys as quote infantile and inverted and certain areas of the fandom who take instant offense to anyone who reads a character as gay bi or trans why do you think some people are so hostile to queer readings of media? And do you think this is reversible with proper re- representation? So I'll, I'll I'll continue to borrow from Andrea's insights here. Um, I, I think first and foremost, the reason for some of that hostility is they're going to be hostile against LGBTQ plus regardless, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. But I think another reason for that hostility is because, now to use an antonym of one of the words I've been using, they see it as a disinvitation for their participation in the story. And if we think about, uh, Andrea's made a good point a couple of times, which has to do with people wanting to put characters or real people in boxes. And, and actually, there's been a little brain research done on this. And what we find is that there are some people and they align more often than not with individuals who uh, identify as political conservatives, but they're very uncomfortable in a world in which things are not black and white, good and evil, male and female. They, they actually become uncomfortable in situations where that's not the way things are laid out. Mm-hmm. So for them, Johnny Tremaine cannot be both attracted to Rab and attracted to Scylla. Mm-hmm. In the case of Ted Lasso, a player cannot be attracted to men and attracted to women you know, to use the more conventional term, bisexual, because that means they don't fit in one box that screws up my whole view of the world as being either or. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what's at the heart of that. And it's annoying because they have, what, 10 other players, you know, like Mm -hmm. if we get one gay or bisexual, pansexual man out of of, of 11 players and they'll lose their collective shit over it, it's it's quite annoying. (laughs) Well, and when you when you think about the fact that there's a high correlation between those people losing their shit over a fictional TV character and losing their shit over real people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's no. the worrying factor of it. Yeah. Yeah. But lately, and we did discuss this earlier, lately there have been more male sports players coming out as gay and bi and um, sharing their struggles with existing and traditionally masculine spaces. And you state in your paper that representation can be a personally subversive act when it serves to validate the identities of readers who are at odds with themselves, which I love. That's a beautiful, beautiful quote. 
Can you elaborate in your opinion that more representation representation can cope be especially important for those who feel maligned by society? And do you believe that this could apply to sports in the same way that it does in other areas? I do. Visibility provides affirmation and validation. And I think that is absolutely critical in professional male sports. Because right now, you can Google those terms, and it takes more than two hands to count the number of out gay male professional athletes around the world. But not, you know, we we could have a room of five people and we wouldn't use all of our hands. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I just think it is so important for someone who is out there, some 22, 23-year-old male or female or non-binary professional athlete who spends part of each day in terror that they will be found out. I think that it is critical for that person, for those people to see themselves in some aspect of what gives them joy. Because even if that doesn't prompt them to come out, it gives them the courage and the ability to face that fear for one more day. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I you know, I, I think it is absolutely paramount that we support and affirm those athletes, again, male, female, non-binary, professional athletes, who come out in ways that risk a lot for them, that but have a huge benefit for countless other individuals. That's a yeah, that's a fantastic answer, yeah. Andrea. Well do you said. have anything that yeah. you want to add to that? No, just well said. I yeah, completely. and I really hope that's what Ted Lasso's intention is. Um, Scott, I want yeah. to thank you so much for being so open to discuss your article in such a niche environment because we are a bit of a niche. Um, podcast. A niche within a niche within a niche. I do really appreciate this and if you do watch Ted Lasso I would love to get a follow-up on your thoughts. I think I'm going to start doing that tonight and I'm not just saying that. This has been an absolute delight spending some time with both of you. I will never accuse you of being a niche. Um, (laughs) Isn't that what you eat on Sunday mornings that has egg and broccoli? No, that's a quiche. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's, that's that's the gay man in me trying to, to make brunch. every piece. Yeah, yeah. let's anyway, make it brunch. I, I uh, wish the best to your listeners and to everyone who enjoys Ted Lasso and all the other shows that, that can give us hope and inspiration. Fantastic. Great. Thank you so much. So I hope everyone enjoyed that as much as me and Andrea did because we had a ball. Just an absolute pleasure. And I just want to say thank you so much to Scott for um, giving us his time, his enthusiasm, and his interest in something he hadn't even watched yet. And I say yet because we're sure he's going to. And I want to remind you that we are going to release the full interview with Scott one week after this episode. So look out for that. And honestly, I would really recommend that. It was a thoroughly enjoyable conversation, especially for this person who is just waiting for Collins coming out. That's all of us, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> well i don't know we might have to fill in those gaps we will we will see oh, yeah let's hope mm-hmm. not <laughs> mm-hmm. oh really that would be angry but you know we sort of cover that but um I, yeah i would be annoyed 
that's the only thing that would that I'd be pissed off about <laughs> if I don't get that. So, you know, we'll see. I might have a rage episode after season three, but I don't think so. I really do think we're getting it. I was looking for something. I was looking for something in the trailer, anything that would give us a hint of that. But Same. I <laughs> it just there's one bit where Colin's walking off the field and he just looks a bit defeated, and I'm, it didn't feel like it was about football or something, you know. So we'll see. But we're getting it. I know we're getting it. I'm fully confident um, that it's happening. So um, Andrea, you came along to the interview because your subject is um, is along the same vein as mine, right? What are what are you going to be talking about? Yeah. Um, so yeah, for I me, mean, first of all, just thank you so much for including me in that interview, Michaela. I had such a great time, both you and Scott. And um, I hope he I really hope he watches Ted Last. So he seemed really interested. We even we even hinted at him about Isaac and how everyone loves Isaac. We were like, we we're like, you'll know who the person is. I mean, like you'll know. You'll you'll immediately know who we're talking yeah. about. But we also asked him if he'd come back after as well to discuss the way that it's, yeah. that Colin's coming out happens. So watch out yeah. for that as well. He's he's very yeah. open to that. Yeah. Um, so really quick, I have a question for everybody. Not Michaela, unfortunately. I'm sorry. This isn't because it was it would have been read in America. But did I mean Bex and Marita? Did you both read this in school? I did not. No. no. And I that's didn't. really funny because I grew up in like I. He said it was in he was like how old or he was in middle school right he was in middle school yeah fifth or sixth yeah. grade what he says yeah so i was in sixth grade in connecticut and in massachusetts and i was oh, in yeah. seventh grade in massachusetts and eighth grade but i never read this book me neither okay i was just curious because i mean you know yeah i, I couldn't even I, get the yeah. book i had to i had only had the option of audio because my library was like what what are you talking about the- you don't want to learn it's about very that anti <laughs> anti uk yeah, a little bit yeah fuck the colonists uh my second i have a second intro question kind of why does every book ted pick have something problematic in it like sometimes it's something minor and sometimes it's fucking fountainhead but like <laughs> why- <laughs> well my theory is and because if we look at the books that beard has read versus the books that ted has read i don't think ted does much reading anymore these were all things he read earlier in his life maybe in college maybe in high school Mm. um not to say that he couldn't or wouldn't read he just those and maybe that's it on the writer's room that has all of these like 40 something year old men (laughs) that are like you know, if if someone like Ashley Nicole Black, for example, is writing about a book, she's going to probably have a different character be the one who's read it than Ted. Right. That's my thought. I just I think Ted as a character is not a big contemporary, like a reader in his adult life. That's that's my thought. It's sad, but <laughs> I, I would also add that, you know, they are picking things that are problematic and but they are picking things that for their time if you contextualize them i mean yes johnny tremaine definitely have has its issues but at least forbes is cognizant and does acknowledge contributions of women and people who uh, uh, black folks that maybe aren't major in the novel they certainly aren't treated well by the characters in the novel but does acknowledge that they played a part it's not um enough and i certainly wouldn't take any issue with people taking issue with that but i think there was more representation there than 
other people writing at that time would have given. Does that make totally sense? Totally, it does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But there are also like many late 20th and early 21st century novels that address similar themes that oh, could have been used as examples. Absolutely. But characters like Ted would not have necessarily read them. Like Henry is too young for some of the books, like the ones that kind of came out in that in-between window between his college life and now Henry, right. I think. Cool. Um, so yeah, so you've all listened to the interview now and, you know, definitely once Michaela and Marina were t- sort of talking about it in our little chat, I kind of raised my hand to be included because I was also drawn to this being a queer narrative and, you know, what it tells us about Colin. Um, so I will say it took me a minute to get into this book, but I, I did, I did become invested into the story and the characters. Um, I think maybe some of the problematic stuff I was even talking about, like, I think it was in the first couple chapters, just kind of this, like, I didn't go back and check just exactly where it was, but like the the kind of all the descriptions of the girls and the, and it's just like i don't know it was just kind of icky in the very beginning and i was just like oh it's another one of these books you know and then it then it kind of grew on me for sure but um so yeah so i i feel like after kind of that kind of initial like he became a character that i felt sympathetic for and i cared about him i liked that johnny like cared about his craft and he was an artist and he you know he has some interesting about it, things about him and then definitely like once rob rab came in like that was like, I was kind of hooked into the book. And so, yeah, so the the moment that Johnny met Rab, it was just like Johnny is Colin, Rab is Isaac was just like, and I couldn't, I, once I thought that, I couldn't get away from same, it. Same with me so with again, Colin. Like, I, like there was just a part of the yeah. book when I read it and I was like, oh, there's just no, no way this guy isn't gay, you know, like just. I know. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was unmistakable. So like, I appreciate everyone else's opinions on what they saw because I, like, I couldn't see past it once I saw it. Um, so hearing about Ted was extremely interesting for me because I was like, oh yeah, like didn't even, didn't even occur to me. You know, also then I, I also the notion that this was a queer book became so immediately apparent to me because I was convinced that Johnny, that Johnny is bisexual. He understood his attraction and relationship with women, but when Rab appeared, it confused him. I think, you know, he had moments of jealousy that he had for Rab and Celia, Sela. How, how was that pronounced in the audiobook? Sela. Sella. I think it's still a so the moments of jealousy Sella, he yeah. had between the two of them. I think it was twofold, right? I think um, Johnny's confusion on where the jealousy was based, which side of the relationship was it sexual? Was it just about being like, "Hey, my friends are going to hang out without me"? Kind of jealousy, you know, like there were just all these kind of layers into it. Was it again, yeah, these two people that he admired and liked having relationships outside of him that bothered him, you know, even how he begged the um, the women to kind of have these like daily meetings with him, you know, and then that kind of like fell off of his radar. Like he was just like, well, no, I have to keep these relationships with, you know, with the women in my life. Then, you know, he even says he's just kind of like lost interest in it and kind of let it go. Like it wasn't, that wasn't an overwhelming feeling of him to be like, I need to be, be around females you know like he was spending every day with rab <laughs> he was not with other you know with okay but i'm just gonna say it <laughs> it was there you know so that was just very interesting to me and just watching that all play out and that energy and i, and I loved how you know it was so nuanced and it wasn't it, even though like even though i read it and i saw it immediately and i and i and i was into it it wasn't so blatant that you're like what are they trying to tell me like it was just it was nuanced and that felt so real for me and i feel like colin has that same nuance in his character you know when he used grinder as an example he did it as just this thing he noticed like Right. Like he said grinder and there were like a couple looks at him like, where's that coming from? Because Colin, because Tinder does the same exact thing. 
And that's more yeah. of the like straight. <laughs> excellent <laughs> you know? point. Yeah, absolutely excellent point. And I was a bit worried at first before I realized what was happening that that was just a punchline. And I was like, why is that a punchline? But now I see where they're going with it. Yeah, Colin was so earnest about it. He's just like, oh yeah, like grinder. Like, oh yeah, like I, you know, like these are the two parts of my life. Like he just seems so matter of fact about it. Even though I do believe he doesn't have, even though I believe he's not aware of that side of him yet. You know, that's, yeah. Like he may not be aware of that side of him yet. I, I, my theory Maybe. is that he is, but he's not ready because, you know, for the reactions. He's, but, you yeah. know, like you say, we're filling in the gaps. Like, yeah. We're filling in the gaps. And like, yeah, he could still be confused about what he's actually feeling. Cause again, right. And I think we talked about it with Scott, you know, there is something about you, you know, with sports, especially where you have to feel like you have to be more masculine and like pushing the masculinity. Like he might not even be aware. He, you know, he might not be aware. He may be aware and just hiding it. It's hard to say. So the queer, re- the queer reading, although obvious wasn't explicit, it was a nuance to me, which I feel like is a reality of bisexuality. I don't feel like in my experience with it, it's not this overwhelming thing, right? There's warmth and attraction to different people and it kind of ebbs and flows. And it's not this thing that's just like, you know, which is why I'm equating it with Colin, where I'm, I'm leaning more towards bisexuality than gay is because it, you know, it's like, oh, well, which one is it? And like, I'm not really sure what's going on. And like, I don't really know what to name this or call this. And like, it's not obvious. And that's what I feel like Colin, again, with these kind of examples of him not being so explicit with it. And also Johnny, like it's again, he was just kind of like, oh, there's this person and I have feelings and I don't really know what this is. And, you know, there's an attraction to this person, but is it just in, you know, their brain and as a friend or is there more that's a massive coming of age thing as well right as like instead of just focusing on the female or male protagonist falling in love with the opposite gender a coming of age story um you know that encompasses homosexuality or lesbianism or bisexuality pansexuality anything like that is so interesting because there's so like you say much more nuanced to it yeah but yeah. yeah, you see a lot of those storylines that like, even if it's the same exact story that's told, that has been told many times before from a straight perspective, when you see it through a queer, like uh, an overtly queer lens, then it's like, oh, this is something new, right? Mm-hmm. And and in this case with, with your reading of Colin is like, it's a lot more subtle, um, but it's there. I mean, it's just there. I I can't not see it either. Yeah. And so, you know, Colin is obviously a man very conflicted. Like I said, you know, I am a strong and capable man. Um, His little mantra, his mantra, (laughs) you know, and he isn't sure of his place and his identity. And I believe it's because he hasn't realized the truth about himself. You know, and I think Johnny started the book with an appearance of this confidence in his craft and who he was. But I think the injury just kind of sent him on this path of trying to figure out who he was now, now that he was Johnny without ability to to work you something know? Ch- i don't know about you andrea but something changed tonally from when he was living with the laphams and he was talking about all the girls and like who he was mm-hmm. supposed to marry and who was like the prettiest you know the bit you said was icky as well because it is um but that sort of thing and then when he met rab and i felt a tangible thing when he met rab that was obviously like marita had read the book before and knows my feelings on colin and had spotted what I was going to pick up on before I did, which I'm so grateful for. But at the same time, there was just 
this thing where it felt like he was talking about the women in the way that he thought he should be. But when it came to Rab, that was real. You know, that felt more real to yeah. me. I, I also think that there is there's this break in the story, right? Because when he leaves the Laphams and he stops, he's basically giving up on his ideal of where he'll fit into society. Um, he no longer just assumes he's going to marry a woman because there's one available to him and he's going to just naturally build into the career with the silver shop. So once he has that break, I think it frees him up a little bit to have kind of other perceptions. He doesn't yet know what he is going to be or be able to be, but it does really shift him away from this prescribed path through life that he had if he hadn't yeah, been injured. Totally. Yeah. And it's interesting the injury got, that he got stopped him from doing the more, um, and I'm using quotations here, masculine jobs, you know, which right. is another sort of I am a strong and capable man connection. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, so Rabbi also immediately saw as Isaac and he was kind of this quiet, unassuming friend who has a lot of confidence and who knows who he is. Like, I think Colin, Johnny's attraction to this person is part of it is their easy confidence, their awareness of themselves, you know, all these kinds of things. And so I did rewatch season one and two and kind of really focused, paid attention to the Colin Isaac dynamic. And they are inseparable in season one for almost all of it. Every scene you see Isaac, there's Colin. Like they are just glued to each other and they feed off of each other. And they are such an easy, it's such an easy friendship. Yeah. The side pricks. I just the side pricks. I love it. I love it when he's in the bar and him and um, Isaac are sort of leaning over the seats and it's after um, he's been headbutted by Ron and he's like, I'm not supposed to drink. And then immediately just takes a sip of a beer. (laughs) It's one of my favorite bits. I like the one when they're watching the Iron Giant and Colin's got his arm yeah. around Isaac, yeah. just like, yeah. yeah. Oh, so, oh, God, I love it so much. So especially in season one and every scene with them, they are paired together. And Ky- Colin is trying very hard to be something he thinks he needs to be. Where Isaac is very sure of who he is and what his place is there and what he needs to be. And I think, right, I think Colin is good at football, not soccer. And right. And so he's there on the team and he has a place and it's there and it's set, but he isn't comfortable yet with who he is. Yeah. Yeah. And the only thing I think that Colin is sure of is um, would be his friendship in his friendship with Isaac and his Welsh Welsh heritage. The Lamborghini, he admits, the Lamborghini, he admits is way too much car for him. Like he's just kind of like admitting, like I bought this as a penis car, like you know what I mean? And I, you know, I believe that's part of the identity that he is faking. Like there's always this joke about men who thinks they need sports car, like there's, you know, compensating for something. And like, yeah, Colin admits it. It just made me think of Johnny and his horse when he first gets that horse. Like he can't control that horse. He does. He does. It's too much horse. For him. That's so true. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I messaged Marita when I, when I started reading about the horse and I was like, is this a never ending story thing? Can you please tell me up front if this horse is going to cark it? Because I can't cope with that. And luckily, isn't there a whole website devoted yeah. to that? I think there's a whole website that will tell you if the dog dies at the end of the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah. I watched Never Ending Story at a birthday party when I was a child. Like, what a choice. I had an interesting aside here because something that was interesting to me reading about the the discussion of how children's literature, especially around war and trauma, is so softened, right? But the books and the films we remember are the mm-hmm. ones that didn't. Like a book I absolutely remember from childhood is where the red fern grows. Have you read that? 
but we've yes. got Watership Down here, which is a similar thing. We've- right. But those are the ones that stick with you is the ones where they don't soften that trauma. Um, I- sorry, that was totally off topic. No, I still have. I, I, you're right. Oh, no, that that's... memory of watching that horse sink into the quicksand at a birthday party. <laughs> You know, or watching a bunch of rabbits just die. Like, that stuck with me. I can imagine. And so I think Colin and Isaac's relationship goes through a journey throughout season one and two, similar to Johnny and Rab. They are pretty equal until Isaac is given the push forward into being team captain. He's a natural leader that Roy notices once he starts paying attention. Um, Rab also has this apprenticeship that he's in. But he also has his family, the family that he's working for trusts him, right? And he starts to take kind of this more leadership role. And once he started getting into the politics and propelling himself forward into his authority shined, just like Isaac. And so uh, inclusion, my hope, my, my hope is that Colin awakens to whom he is. Yes, he is a strong and capable man, and he should have pride in every aspect of his identity, which I think is bi or maybe gay, whichever, whatever way it goes. Um, I think once he realizes this and accepts this, he will propel forward. I also feel that this would be a pivotal moment in the relationship with Isaac, because Isaac will be the one he fears his reaction to uh, the most, but Isaac will be the one who's just like, no, man, like, no, you're my friend. I got you. Like, oh my God. You're already crying anticipation yeah this episode this when we get this calling episode that the group chat is going to be lit up so this is the one storyline i hope for the most besides learning why ted picked fountainhead (laughs) these two storylines for me have to be resolved you're more likely to get the Colin one than I, I don't think we're going to hear from the Fountainhead again. I think we're just going think, to have yeah. to. Andrea's going to have to write her own fan fiction as to why Ted picked Fountainhead. <laughs> on, on Twitter, we if they don't address it, we are absolutely having a writing contest. We'll, we'll give a prize to whoever can come up with the most satisfying resolution yeah. for that. I mean, at some point, we're going to have to do an episode like one month that like everyone's really busy. Or I think, Marita, you want to read it too. Like, I will. I plan to read it so that I have absolutely no guilt in ripping it to shreds. Yes. So some month, Mikhaila and Bex, maybe vacations or you're busy, we'll read this book, this hell book. Do you want to go on holiday, Bex, or vacation while they read the book? We'll just go and chill somewhere. Oh, we're going on holiday and they're reading the book? Yes. Okay, I'm down with that. (laughs) I thought... I thought Andrea was talking about us reading the book on our Ooh. holiday. Oh, God, no, that sounds awful. Oh, like, what a waste of my vacation. Yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll be in Barbados. You enjoy the book. Oh, I loved everybody's pieces today. So, Andrea, I love that you are reading Johnny as Colin and Marita had read Johnny as Ted. I read Johnny as Roy Kent. Wow. <laughs> and... Let me tell you, it's, it was more so at the beginning of the book, I think. Um, but he was a young boy who was sent off on his own to be trained up for professional football, much like Johnny was sent off to learn a trade, right? Roy was raised and trained to believe that he was the best at what he did, and he came out on top. He even admits to being cocky when he was a younger player, much like Jamie in season one. Um, and he, like Johnny, had to experience life to grow up and become the man that he would become. And as for the bisexual reading of Johnny, you know, uh, I've seen a, a ship out there as the polyamorous ship of uh, Roy Keeley and James. Yeah, so interesting. That's, that one. Another, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's another one. It's not quite as deep as either of these two, but I did at least in his early in that in that first section of the book I definitely saw those parallels of like a young boy who has to like 
go out and grow up in a particular uh, trade, I guess. I mean, the sport of, of football is is Roy's trade in a sense. So that's that's where I saw the parallel. How is it possible that I can agree with all of you? It's because we're all brilliant, <laughs> Michaela. Yeah, just parallels. And, and congratulate me because I just said that right. But it just every one of you said something different. And I'm like, yeah, you're all right. How's that work then? <laughs> That's my favorite thing about literature. Yeah, it is so much fun. <laughs> it's so hard Let's to roll. be wrong. Some people, yeah, it can oh, happen. Yeah, it can it. Happen. Oh, it, oh, it does. I've had papers back. <laughs> yeah, I've been there, done that. It can happen, but not here, not in this wonderful place where we exist. Andrea, hopefully, you know what we're reading next. I do. We are going to read Prince of Tides, which was Sharon's favorite book. Oh, I can't wait for this, actually. I had to request this one from the storage units at my library because it's apparently too old slash not popular enough anymore to be on the regular. Oh, God, I've not, I've not even tried to get it yet. So I'm going to be screwed then because, like, they didn't even know what John. No, I mean, it was easy to get it. They have it. They just don't keep it out on the regular shelves uh, for people to just pick up because there's too many books that they keep too many other good books on the shelf so it's in their storage thing and they just send someone downstairs to get it so fantastic so thank you everybody just a quick reminder that a week after this episode the full interview with scott henderson will be out um so if you could check that out that would be great and we will see you next time greyhound Bye. Bye. bye Follow us on Twitter at Beards Book Club or send us an email at coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family and leave a five-star review.